Welcome to the Table Dallas podcast. At the Table Dallas, we create a sacred space to worship, connecting our stories with the story of God as revealed in scriptures. We invite you now to listen to this week's discussion. All right, welcome everyone to the Table Dallas. We're glad that you're with us today as we continue in our our series, uh, Grumpy Old Preachers, and we've been kind of here for, this is now our eighth week in the study, and we're going to wrap it up, I think, next week as we head into Advent, and uh, today we're going to be in the book of Zephaniah. All right, so, question right off the top, by show of hands, how many of you remember hearing a sermon or doing a study on the book of Zephaniah? Don't you dare lie, because I didn't think a single hand was going to go up. No? Yeah, even in seminary. No, no one, no one. Has, so this will be our first foray, foray into a book, um, the Minor Prophet book of Zephaniah. So if you want to turn there this morning. Um, a real quick question by way of opening as you're turning there, and we won't spend too long on this, but when we read the Bible, we find a tension, I think you'll agree, we find a tension between God's judgment and his love. We've been seeing that for the number of weeks now, right? Where you have this proclamation of judgment, impending doom, something to think about if you don't change your ways. And yet somewhere in there, there's often inserted, right, this, this word of hope, this, this love piece, if you want. So why do you think both are so prominently represented in Scripture? In other words... Why do you think we see this tension between this, the God of judgment, if you will, and a God of love? Why the tension? Anybody? I think they go hand in hand. Um, the, the judgment and our continuing failure to, to live up to expectations sets up the necessity of God's love for us. Okay. Um, because we can't earn it, it has to be freely given, and I think that's what makes his love more beautiful in that way. Got it. So you're you're pulling on that fact that we are such fallen creatures mm-hmm. that without the love of Christ and the love of God, we have no hope, right? So they're they're connected in that way. Because we're so fallen, we need that love of God. Good. Yeah, Mike. Some people might say that that they don't that they're contradictory to each other because perfect love means no judgment. Mm-hmm. Some people might say something like that. Is that true, though? I don't think so. Is that statement true? Pure love means no judgment? I think you can discipline out of love also. Like if someone's straying and and you love them and you want to bring them back into right relationship. Yeah. Other ideas about the tension between the judgment of God and his love that we see and find in the scriptures? Well, I can promise you this. The book of Zephaniah will never take the place of John 3.16 or John's Gospel in, um, and be number one in Bible um, popularity for sure. Um, I'm calling today's little chat that we're having the dark side of love. The dark side of love. Because this little book of Zephaniah, um, <laughs> although it's not familiar to you, I promise you um, that... What we're going to see is, is probably, in my opinion, maybe the most uh, total condemnation of judgment that we'll find anywhere in, in the scriptures. 
and it's been hidden in this tiny little book. Now, Zephaniah himself identifies himself better than any of the other minor prophets. Uh, the book right before it is Habakkuk. We know nothing about Habakkuk. We know a little bit about Amos, tiny little bits and pieces here, but Zephaniah goes to the opposite extreme. We'll see here in a few moments. He really um, tells us a lot about his background, and I think a lot of that um, will lead into helping us understand better what it is that he's going to be sharing with him. So he's a contemporary of Jeremiah and also of Micah, who will, will be in, um, in Micah's book next week. Um, but he's the last of the prophets to bring a message from God before, before the nation is sent into captivity in Babylon. So we've been jumping back and forth, post-exile, pre-exile. He is the last prophet. So what he's talking about is like, it's imminent. It's going to be happening anytime now because you've just been building, building, building toward this. So uh, we'll meander through the first chapter and into the beginning of the second chapter this morning. I promise you we'll make it through because it's not as difficult as we might think. All right, so we're going to be in Zephaniah chapter 1. Did everybody find it by now? Let's not wait a minute. Y'all can cheat, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. You can just go to your electronic thing and just click on Zephaniah and it brings you right there. Yeah. We might have to do an old school Bible drill one of these days. <laughs> yeah, some of you. And no, none of it like this, Nancy. You can't have your, you got to hold it with the top, you know, you got to hold top side down. That was the skill, right? Anybody remember that? What? You never did Bible drills? No. So what you would do is, for those of you who don't know what a Bible drill is, everybody in your class would go like this. You'd hold up your Bible, and they'd say, Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 3. And then together we say, Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 3, and then go. And the object was, for you as students, you learn your way through the Bible, because then you have to find it and be the first one to read it, and you get points and stickers. Well, you get to stand up and read it. Well, either way. Everybody knows. Yes. you got to be the first one in. So that was like bragging rights in Sunday school. Bragging rights in Sunday school. All right. Zephaniah chapter 1. Somebody go ahead and read for us. We're going to divide it into a little bit of sections here. Verses 1 through 6. Warning, there's some names. <laughs> so remember when we say names, you just go and act like you know the way it's said and go with it. The Lord's word that came to Zephaniah, Cushi's son, Gedaliah's grandson, Amariah's great-grandson, Ezekiel's great-great-grandson, in the days of Judah's King Josiah, Josiah, Amon's son. I will, wipe out, I will wipe out everything from the earth, says the Lord. I will destroy humanity and the beasts. I will destroy the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea. I will make the wicked into a heap of ruins. I will eliminate humanity from the earth, says the Lord. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I will eliminate what's left of Baal from this place and the names of the priests of foreign gods, those bowing down to the forces of heaven on rooftops, those swearing by the Lord along with those swearing by Milcom, those turning away from the Lord, those who don't seek the Lord and don't pursue Him. Remember I said... Well, this is the word of the Lord. So, remember like I said, this isn't going to be mistaken for John 3.16, right? This is not God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not 
but have eternal life. This isn't that. This is, I am going to destroy all of the earth. But before we jump into the devastation, the distress, the darkness, it's interesting to me um, the way that Zephaniah introduces himself, right? Gives his lineage there. So here's my question at the beginning. Does this pedigree matter? In other words, um, to the original hearers, does it matter that this line of succession is there? And if so, why? If not, why not? What do you think? Does this lineage, this pedigree, does it make a difference? That's exactly the point. He is fourth generation royalty. Okay, good. Does it make a difference? If so, what? Never mind. Credibility. So the fact that he's a royal lineage lends a certain credibility. Maybe that Habakkuk or Amos, who's just a fig, was he a fig farmer, David? I can't remember. Fig farmer. Fig tender and shepherd. And a shepherd, right? Does this give it, is this a little more gravitas? What do you think? Got a feeling, yes, no? Yes. There for a reason. So. It's there for a reason. And yeah. it's better than just saying, oh, I know this person whose sister and brother and whatever said such and such. Yeah. It's got names. Yeah. Does it matter to us? Maybe not as much as it did to them. Well, certainly not as much as it, right? We don't have royalty, right? So in our culture, this idea that we're coming down from royalty, but if we can put ourselves in another culture where royalty is there, there's certainly a gravitas that goes with that, right? A certain amount of, hey, this is even more um, uh, trustworthy, this is even more authoritative, because it's coming from royalty, right? And not just any royalty, we'll see that in a minute um, when we get um, a little bit further in. So, darkness, distress, devastation, um, the declaration that God was about to wipe out everything from the earth. And as I said earlier, I think this is the harshest most universal judgment announcement in all of scripture. I mean, it's pretty well like um, even the animals are destroyed, right? But notice the, the language, Zephaniah's choice of language and imagery. Look at verses 2 and 3. And it should be um, echoes. It should bring echoes back to us. What's the imagery and language that he's using here? Isn't it from Genesis? Right, so we get Genesis. How so? Um, well, it's sort of I don't know about the order, but the the language that was used during creation, like God made birds in the sky and fish in the sea. And okay. And then also with the flood. Mm -hmm. yeah, the flood and the flood and being total destruction, yeah. And Sodom and Gomorrah. Too. Okay, Sodom and Gomorrah. Good. What else? Ooh, good times. <laughs> yeah, all of these things. Yeah. Ooh, good times. I like that. What What's different? So the echo is creation. Maybe the flood, maybe Sodom and Gomorrah. But let's focus in for a minute on the creation piece because it says there, humanity, the beast, the birds, the sky, the fish, all of that. There's something unique about it. What has he done? It has to do with the order of creation. It's so he's done it in reverse order. So in exactly opposite, right, he's going to take out all of mankind. Right? Um, is this hyperbole? Is it hyperbole? And if so, why? What's the purpose? But after Noah, he said he would never do that again. He said he would never destroy the earth in a flood. In a flood. 
He didn't say he would destroy the earth, but through that means, for sure, yeah. He's taking, he's taking out what's most important to him to what's least important to him. So, like, when he created man, okay. man was in his image and man was good in his eyes. And then, you know, we screwed it all up. But he's taking out the most important thing to him, what he has made in his image, and then going back to the lesser creatures. Okay. Is that hyperbole? You know what hyperbole is, right? Hyperbole. Is it hyperbole, Brian? It feels hy hyperbolic. <laughs> in terms of, mm -hmm. Doesn't it? I mean, I don't think it'll be hyperbolic. But it's it's got this it's got this sense of immensity, right? Like this is this is serious stuff. Like if he God is God is at the point where he's saying, "I'm going to wipe out everything on the earth." Um, you're in pretty bad shape. Where humanity is in pretty bad shape. Or in this case, not just Judah, but he's even taking it out on the animals and the plants. Who Have they done anything? No? So this hyperbole, right, to make his point. Like, it's bad. All right? And it seems like it's almost like every time the prophets come, he has to ratchet it up a little bit. Because they're, they're really not listening, right? It just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. Um, Don't you think it would feel like it when the Babylons came in? I mean, that this was happening? Well, I'm sure it definitely felt that way for them because so much of, of their relationships, their culture, their worship, all is, is gone. And then their land being destroyed and taken over. Yeah, it would feel as though, for sure, that God had totally destroyed everything. Because they would have no reference points, right? Totally, yeah, I get that. Um feelings do you have when you hear these words? That God's really, really, He's really mad at me. <laughs> <laughs> brought you into this world and I can take you out. <laughs> no escape. Does anybody feel uncomfortable? Mm -hmm. I mean, this is the same God who's described as a God of love. Wow. Well, but he, he is still being loving. They are the ones that have desecrated his inheritance to them. He gave them the land as an inheritance. They are the ones desecrating it with the idolatry. So really, in his mercy, right. this sounds crazy, in his mercy, he's going to wipe them out. He's giving them a warning. You know, he's, he's sounding off the warning shots. But then, if you don't, <coughs> they don't do their part, he's going to have to follow through. It, and it feels to me, this is weird wording, but like a power move, like I'm reestablishing the control that I have that you don't have. Exactly. Yeah. And that's really well done. Really well said. Um, he's obviously profoundly upset with Judah, right? Clearly, Judah has done something wrong. And I think you hit on it. There's some hints in verses three and four about what they've done wrong. Anybody the idols, see it? The idols and the Baal. Yeah, so the Baal, the worship of the... There's gods from from uh, from the Canaanites and the god of the um, Ammonites. Those are the two being... So um, that word, that's uh, the name that's translated there, Milcom, is another word for Moloch. So that's that god. And both of those are worshipped in weird ways, right? So you have all of this kind of... Um, uh, you have uh, sacrifices to the gods of children, and then you have um, the way they talk about the worship of Baal for fertility. Um, he's locked in battle with this god called Mott, and so 
Um, you've got death and sterility in this battle, and so they would have um, sacred prostitution. They called it sacred prostitution. So these are all things that God abhorred, right? And I love the way you said it um, when we talk about this act of God's love. In the same way he blocked mankind from going back into the garden as his first act of love. This is actually an act of love. It's the dark side of love, if you will. Not the dark side of the moon, Brian. The dark side of love, right? And it's difficult, though, right? Um, What did Israel's worship of these gods indicate about how they viewed Yahweh? Anybody? They didn't rely on him. Okay. They felt like they needed to do something else to mock to uh, Moloch. What's the word I'm looking for? Milcom. No. Um, to, to soften or mollify. That's the word I was looking for. Thank you. Yeah. Anything else? They wanted to do it their way. Yeah. They wanted to be in control. And, and he's also saying that he's going to sweep away. Not exactly. I don't think that means he's going to destroy the people. I will wipe out. I will destroy. Yeah. He's not happy, right? Um, what were the What were the people of Israel counting on to save them at this point? Anybody? Their status. Their status as what? As his people. Yeah. So there's a sense of. Um, you get this, the word that keeps coming to my mind is just complacency. Like, we're fine. We're fine. We're going through the rituals. I mean, this is all language. When you look at this, this is language of worship. There's language of festival here, uh, temple worship, right? And so there's this, compl- hey, we're doing all the right things. We're here. We're, on, we're, you know, we're worshiping in the temple. We're doing these things. We're following the law, right? But somehow, you know, they've now added on these terrible things, right? And God said, okay, enough is enough. All right, let's keep going. Verses 7 through 14a. We'll just we'll go through 14a and then we'll... Hush, hush before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has established a sacrifice. He has made holy those he has summoned. On the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the princes, the king's sons, and all those wearing foreign clothes. I will punish the one leaping on the threshold on that day, those filling the house of their master with violence and deceit. On that day, says the Lord, an outcry will resound from the fish gate, wailing from the second quarter, a loud crash from the hills. The ones who grind the grain will wail. All the merchants will be silenced. I will eliminate all those weighing out silver. At that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps. I will punish the men growing fat on the sediment in their wine, those saying to themselves, the Lord won't do good or evil. Their wealth will be looted and their houses destroyed. They will rebuild houses, but not live in them. They will plant vineyards, but not drink the wine. And you said part of the great day of the Lord is near. It is near and coming very quickly. So he, beginning of verse 7, he says, Hush before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. Why do you think Zephaniah calls the people to silence? Why is there a need for silence? What does it accomplish? 
Why silence? It's really hard to listen when your mouth is running. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Say it again. It's really hard to listen when your mouth is running. Well, they probably are speaking untruths as well. Okay. Yeah. And excuses. Oh, that's an interesting one. Excuses? I hadn't thought about that. Good. Silence allows for reflection. True. Mm -hmm. sure. What does it accomplish? Reflection? What else? Anything? It kind of stops you in your tracks. Like when you're running your mouth and someone makes you mm -hmm. stop, you know, it's like, a, it's like startling. You're like, did they just shut me? <laughs> yeah, that's exactly it's, it's like shh. Yeah. Shush. What? It's like be quiet, like kayate or whatever. Is that how you say it? Yeah. Is that not good? I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> on the, on the yeah. But you get the point, right? Be quiet. Just uh, did I say it wrong? Ah yeah. Close your mouth. Quiet your mouth. Gotcha. Shut your mouth. Got it. So he tells them to be quiet because if nothing else, maybe it'll give him time to reflect. And it's interesting because he's talking about the day of the Lord. So this is something we've been hearing over and over again. It's a theme throughout the prophets, right? Do we have any idea, what do you think Israel, or the people of Judah now, specifically in this piece, when they hear the words, the day of the Lord, what are they thinking? In other words, what is the day of the Lord? What will be accomplished in that day of the Lord. How do they view it? Do you remember or you want to take a, a stab at that? I don't know that we've spelled it out. His return to, to um, a, a victorious return. Okay. Where he comes and makes things right. Okay. Yeah, wasn't it God basically coming down and wiping out all their enemies, creating a paradise for them? Yeah, I think you, you both hit on it. Um, the return would, it would indicate a belief that there was an advent to begin with, so return might be a word we would stick away from, but this idea that the day of the Lord is a time when God is going to come and he's going to give all of the evil people their just desserts. Like he's going to destroy and take out all of Israel's enemies, right? But interestingly, throughout the passages of, of uh, these First Testament prophets, we're finding that it seems as though the fact that they're going to be judged is a surprise to Israel. Mm -hmm. Continue. It shouldn't be. This, this sounds like Yom, Yom Kippur to me. Okay. Except that this time the Lord is preparing the sacrifice, not the priests. Right. Because I guess the priests are just too out there, you know, out there with their own gods and stuff like that instead of being able to prepare themselves for So why, do they, why are they continually surprised by the fact that God's going to judge them as well? Why are they surprised? Continually, it seems. 
If they've been reading the Torah, this should not be a surprise. So maybe they're surprised because <laughs> they were. Yeah. Yeah. So what is it that, I mean, we talk about them relying on their status as God's people, certainly, but there has to be more involved in why they're so surprised, right? What are they thinking at this point? Do you think they agree that they've become complacent, that they've become rebellious, or do they completely see themselves differently than God does? What do you think? I think the leaders have led them that way, telling them that they were doing what was correct, and so they fell in line, and then generations passed. I mean, where is it where the scrolls are found again? And I mean, I mean it's like, oh, you've got to be kidding me. That, that and so I think it's the, I put the blame on the leaders, quite honestly. Mm -hmm. I mean, not the people who are, you know, out of that, but the leaders have a responsibility, and I think they've failed throughout history. And it's interesting that um, Zephaniah places himself, and it tells us at the beginning, who's reigning right now. He's prophesying under the reign of, look it up, verse 1. Josiah, the child king. Remember, he becomes king at 8 years old. What big event takes place in the life of Josiah during Josiah's reign that is an interesting connection here? What takes place? Yeah, so isn't it interesting, right? So in King Josiah's day, so there's been a series of these kings, right? And all of a sudden, they're redoing the temple. They're, they're renovating the temple. And what did they discover? They discover the law. And it's like, what is this thing that we're reading, right? And Josiah's like, this is the law. And so it begins this, this they period. They, they, they actually read the law. So the idea here is for generations... They haven't been doing it. They've just been counting on whatever the priests have been telling them or whatever whatever rituals they've been doing, right? They're counting on that. So they're surprised when they find out, oh, wait, there's more to the Torah than just, oh, I got to do this festival, I got to do this, I got to do this. Maybe that's why they're so surprised. Mike? Does that imply that the law was lost? Yeah. The written law was lost? Exactly. That it had become... They become so complacent in their worship that it's like they didn't even miss it. It's like it would be like us coming and having some conversation and not even opening the Bible for like years and just having nice conversations about spirituality and what it means to be a Christian and follow Jesus, right? Without any reference point, right? So here's my question. Given the people's indifference toward their faith that had grown to the point that the Torah had been found in some dusty old corner of the temple, that's essentially what's happened, right? And read for the first time in anybody's memory. That's what it tells us in the text there in 2 Kings. No one ever remembered. Everybody who's living at the time, no one remembered it ever being read. Why would people really care about the scary talk about God's wrath? Why should they care? I mean, they've not cared for a long time, why should they care now? should be a wake-up call. Seems like. Okay. If they've not heard that, if they've not heard the law for so long, and now it's being called to their attention that their, their rejection of the law is going to lead to destruction, it should definitely 
at least get their attention. So you have this imagery. God is walking through Jerusalem. That's his throne, right? His place where he dwells, right? And he's holding a lamp. What's he trying to find? What's the imagery? It's there. What's the imagery? What's he trying to find? Men growing fat on the sediment in their water. That's what he's finding. The imagery is, so you get this idea that they're, they're, they're searching for, you know, uh, in the temple, you know, they, they find this buried scroll, right? And God's saying, I have to use the same kind of lamp to search out all the corners to try to find a place where I can find faithful people. Instead, they're like, like you described, <coughs> fat people. That's complacency, right? We're sitting back. Life is good. We're not really paying attention to what's going on. What's some of the other stuff that's in there? Um, saying to themselves, the Lord won't do good or evil. Now, that's an interesting statement. Mm-hmm. The Lord won't go good, do good or evil. What, is, what are they saying? He won't do anything at all. Yeah, or that he... Does it have the, the power, or he he's just kind of an observer? You have that, yeah. He's he, at, you know at best he has the power, but he's choosing not to do anything good or bad, or worse yet, he's like totally incapable. And these other gods of Moloch and 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 Baal, they're the real powerful ones. God doesn't do Yahweh doesn't do anything good or evil. Like he's totally indifferent. Well, and I guess sort of a little bit by extension, like if he doesn't do good, they're sort of assigning provenance for their success sort of internally or with other gods instead of Yahweh, instead of giving, like acknowledging that their life is good because of God. So they're accusing God of exactly the same thing that they're guilty of. Indifference. You see it? So if we were to end our discussion there, it would be like pretty depressing, right, Ray? Yeah. It does not. It does not have a whole lot of hope, right? But as always, there's a dark side of love, right? But the flip coin then is, is if you will, is just a couple of verses. We're going to jump ahead to chapter two and listen to the first three verses here because the darkness has just a hint of light when he writes, "Gather together and assemble yourselves, shameless nation." Before the decision is made, the day vanishes like chaff. Before the burning anger of the Lord comes against you, before the day of the Lord's anger comes against you, seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who practices justice, seek righteousness, seek humility, and maybe you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. There's a tension here, right? That we see pictured. What's being said? What's the, the word of encouragement being offered here? You and to whom? You have a chance. And who's it being who's it who's it being addressed to, do you think? Is it the entire nation? No, it's the righteous. So you, you, you have that picture, don't you, right? Of those of you who are not in totally indifferent. Those little pockets of people who haven't done that, you still have a chance. The nation it's already in motion. Right? You're going to be sent away. Nothing you're going to do is going to change that, but some of you will get a chance to remain in the land if you will do these things. But see, he did that with Sodom, too. When he, of course. He uh, talked to Abraham. You know, Abraham's going, hey, how about 50 people? 
Would you destroy all five of these cities if there were 50 righteous people? Are you going to kill the righteous with, with, the, with the wicked? With the wicked? That's not his heart in doing that. So he's really given a chance here. You know, he was searching out for, for the righteous and trying to rally them. But maybe, <laughs> maybe you'll have a chance to miss out on it. Does that feel encouraging? <laughs> well, it's better than a hundred percent chance you're not. It would make you pray harder. Yeah. It would. It would. Maybe that's the motivation, right? To get you to, and he gives you the axe there. In other words, you have to do some things, right? You have to have a change in your attitudes, right? You have to become more. What's the words there? You have to be humble. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. You have to do something. You can't just rely on your status. As God's people living in the promised land, you become totally complacent. But maybe is important to avoid further complacency. Because if yeah. you're like, if you do these things, you're definitely okay, then... Well, and it's a continual. Yeah. And then I'll just do those things. Yeah. So here's my question as we kind of wrap it up. So remember, this is a text that's not written to us, but it's written for us. Um... Do we struggle with complacency? Yes. What are some of the factors that lead us to to be complacent? What are we trusting in that uh, that these kinds of things won't be happening to us? Comfort. Yeah. Sorry. Comfort. Well, we, like the, because we're comfortable. We're saved. Yeah, like the the idea of grace over works mm-hmm. is very leading to complacency. Okay. It's always checking the boxes that make us feel the same. About that our nation is a chosen nation. <laughs> We've appropriated those promises of, of uh, Israel to our nation. True. But just the fact that we don't have to work as hard as other people in the, in, around the world to, to live. Uh, you know, we can kind of relax and, uh, they, you know, Walk the most percentage of our country people have jobs and income and a lot lower starting level than in other countries and so it's easy to go oh everything's good I don't have to depend on God as much and we have our Bible right here anytime mm-hmm. close to our heart <laughs> we don't have to search for it it, it, it sounds a lot like you know with our fire insurance that we have you know, it's, it's all about me I'm safe. I'm, I'm going to be okay, but everybody else, what about everybody else? You know, but I'll, I'll be okay. So I wonder if a week like today, a week like the one that's in front of us now, um, a week that's designed for thankfulness and to focus in on thankfulness, how can that season of thankfulness help us battle the complacency that is so easily falls uh, into our faith. How could a season of thanksgiving, or can it? I'm assuming that it can. How can it? What do you think? I think if it's more than just ritual, thankfulness around the dinner table where everyone goes around and says the one grateful thing they're thankful for. I don't know, that that was my category. Mm -hmm. Um, But it could feel very ritualistic versus genuine. Um, I think genuine thankfulness and gratefulness uh, brings perspective. 
Whereas if it's just ritual and it's just a holiday thing to do, um, then you're not going to have that heart change, heart shift. I think there's a really fine line between being grateful for abundance and sliding a little bit into gluttony. Like, mm. It's kind of like a weird, let's eat a lot of food and feast. Yeah, our appreciation for, for yeah. <laughs> Any other thoughts on how a, a season of thankfulness can help us? It's kind of like, a, for me, I find it like a double phase because you, at dinner time on Thanksgiving, you're really thankful for what you have, but eat your dinner fast because we gotta go shopping. I'm thankful for what I have, but yeah. I need to go shopping. Yeah. Yeah. Like, <laughs> Good point. Any other final thoughts? We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Table Dallas podcast. We invite you to join the conversation at one of our upcoming tables. To learn more about us, please check out our website at thetabledallas.com. And remember, we're saving a seat for you at the table.